0: Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah.
1: Live from not all to technologies, the show that puts you the listener in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's free. Call one five five four five zero. 450 That's one five five four five zero six six two four. 450 6624 Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about joint tech questions or business inside questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Schlaes. So good evening to you all. Happy to be here with you again. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show starting off this hour. And uh, I'm getting reports that um, our sound on the live stream might not be great. Uh, the speed of the audio is fine. Okay. So we are, uh, we are trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh... Uh, so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not sure what's going on. I, so, so it's probably an audio interface issue. We, uh, we had to, to maneuver a bunch of stuff around. And of course, as it would figure out, as I, as I move all of my stuff around for the Ask No Show, uh, we did an episode of Linux Unplugged. And of course, that came out just fine. <laughs> Well, hopefully, I guess I haven't listened to the recordings. So maybe it didn't go out fine. I don't know, but uh, uh, anyway, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what it sounds like. I suppose there's not much I can do about it at this point, so we'll just have to roll with it. Uh, but anyway, if I sound like a a, a deeper, bigger man tonight, uh, I'm sorry about that. Bitcoin is up to twenty four thousand eight hundred and forty one dollars tonight twenty four thousand dollars tonight it's unbelievable this thing is going crazy cryptocurrency in general has been going crazy my phone has not blown up like this in years with people asking me questions pinging me saying hey no what do you think about this what do you think about that i just unbelievable and i'm just looking here um cryptocurrency Last week, uh, I, I talked a little bit about cryptocurrency. By the way, uh, just a reminder, I know this has generated a lot of discussion. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Uh, we're a family-friendly show. And so uh, if you, you call into the show, you, you have to be family-friendly. If you're not family-friendly, I got a button here that, that kicks you back off the air. And uh, we're on a seven-second delay. And so uh, it, it's it's kind of it – really all it does <clears throat> is make more trouble for our editor because the editor gets the uh, raw files without the edit or without the delay. Uh, and so uh, you're, 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 you, whatever it is you're trying to say is not actually going to get out over the air. You're just making more work for the editor. So keep it family-friendly. If you wouldn't say it to a five-year-old, don't come on here and say it. And uh, if it happens uh, more than a couple times, you're going to find yourself banned from the show entirely. Um. So I had a comment on the last uh, YouTube video. He says, Commenter says, "Noah, I've made thousands of dollars over the past years by sticking, by making small investments in Bitcoin. So I'm having trouble understanding your perspective. Fear and confidence are not the only thing that drives the price of Bitcoin. It also has to do with scarcity. Well, yes, that is true to a degree. That scarcity drives Bitcoin, but scarcity drives Bitcoin because of fear or confidence. If if Bitcoin is going up, it's at twenty four thousand. People have a lot of confidence in Bitcoin. Thus." There are less Bitcoins on the market. The Bitcoin is becoming more scarce. People are buying them. And so the the price is competing higher for people to buy them. And when that happens, when people compete to buy more Bitcoin, um, it becomes more scarce. And so that's true. But that's because of people's confidence in Bitcoin. That's why it's becoming more scarce. Similarly, if people decided tomorrow that they weren't interested in buying Bitcoin, that they thought Bitcoin was a failing currency, that they were fearful that Bitcoin was not going to succeed. They might not invest in Bitcoin. They might invest less in Bitcoin. They might sell Bitcoin. And if that was to happen tomorrow, then the price of Bitcoin would go down. And this is what I'm saying: when you make an investment in a mutual fund, for example, the SP 500, a fantastic investment. If you don't know what to invest your money in, you're looking for actual investment advice. I was I was actually told by a good friend of mine that uh, listens to the show. He's like, "Don't don't give investment advice and don't give tax advice. You're going to get yourself in trouble with a bunch of regulatory agencies." So if I was going to make a recommendation, uh, I, I wouldn't make a recommendation. But uh, I'll tell you what I would do is I put my own money in in uh, in like a like an S uh, and P fund, and 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 the reason for that is is because if you buy a Bitcoin today, tomorrow you'll only have one Bitcoin. The day after that, you'll only have one Bitcoin. A million years from now, you're only going to have one Bitcoin. Same with a dollar, or a, or a, 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 or a yen, you know, or the Iraqi dinar. Doesn't matter because it never it never changed it never multiplies and it's just it, you're just trusting the value of that thing to go up where something like actual investment oftentimes will you you'll gain more share you'll as the dollars go up then you can buy more shares um and, and so you're not just dependent on somebody's confidence or fear and, and i guess that's kind of what i meant by that and uh, you know here's the thing you know i'm i'm all about consenting adults do what they want so if you guys want to invest in uh, in Bitcoin, I mean, you're more... I, I'm not mad. I'm not upset about it. We can still be friends. I. It's just not what I would do. It wouldn't would be what I recommend. I don't think it's a smart thing to do. And I, and I hope you make a lot of money doing it if you do. Uh, it, and, uh, you know, because the more people that are part of the Bitcoin world, the better. Get open phones at this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855 450 6624 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. So... Uh one other thing that happened last week was we talked about um I it was actually a, it was a, it was a, it was a comment in passing. I I didn't even really mean anything by it, but I just talked about uh hacking penetration. Caller called in and said I want to uh I I I want to air gap a machine. And how do I do that? And I said, "Well, the way you would implement any sort of security procedure is you would go through and look from an attacker's perspective. How would they get into this machine? How would they attack this machine? And then you would work backwards. You would you'd work backwards. You'd say, oh, how can I stop them from doing that thing?" And so uh, it, it turns out that was you know apparently an interesting thing to talk about because I have had a bajillion requests from people to say, "Hey, would you talk more about that? What what is that What do you mean the procedure to hacking into a, to breaking into a computer?" And so the first thing I'll do just to, to because it's a it's a personal peeve of mine. And, uh, and additionally, it uh, I know there's going to be at least one other person out there that's going to correct me on it. There is a difference. Uh, there, there's a terminology hacker, and it has a connotation of someone breaking into things. And uh, a hacker is simply just a enthusiast, somebody who enjoys technology. And what we mean when we say hacker, when most people say hacker, is they're actually referring to a cracker. Uh, And that's somebody who uses, who does something maliciously. So uh, I'll just make that distinction right uh, off the top. And so when we say ethical hacking, we mean, we we do mean cracking. We do mean being malicious, but we're doing it malicious for a a good reason, white hat hacking, so to speak. And we, we always teach this and we always talk about it from the perspective of prevention. How do we prevent people from getting into these systems? How do we do that? And why we do that, and and the best way to uh, to prevent any kind of attack is understand how that attack works to begin with. And so that this hour, that's what I'm going to go through with you guys. Eight five five four five zero no, that's eight five five four five zero six six two four. Live at or Show dot a problem: is I'm not in my, uh, my usual environment. So I keep bumping into things like an idiot. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Got uh, three computers and they're all in the wrong place. And this microphone right in the middle—it's terrible. Anyway, so. Uh, how do we go about? Uh, how do we go about securing our systems, our networks? Uh, and so, what we look at is basically the um, the EC Council has come up with a a series of steps. Basically, a essentially, basically, what what has happened is they have come they have outlined a methodology for breaking into any computer system, any network system. And they have broken that down into a series of steps. And what I have done over the last week is kind of put together a list of when we go into a business venue, and they say we want you to uh, make sure that our network is secure. First thing I do is I say, okay, well, we're going to try and break into it as if I was a as if I was a, a malicious uh, operator, and we'll see if I can get into it. And then what I, can, what I if I can get into it, we'll identify the weaknesses, and then we'll fix it. And so I put uh, together a list of all the tools that I use when we do things like that, and uh, I have paired that with the Easy Council's uh, uh, definition of these steps. So we're going to go through each one of those. Now, if you have questions on this, you have comments, if I say something wrong, I say something that that, that needs more clarification, give me a call. Uh, you can call us 855-450-6624 or email live at com. Brent is calling from Texas. Hey, Brent. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how are you? Hey, pretty good. How can we help today?
0: Uh, Yeah, I was just uh, talking to your screener. I've been wanting to call for several weeks. I'm a long-time listener on the Action Show when it was still on and stuff, and and that's kind of how I, you know, I I was familiarized with you and some of the things you do. And I know that uh, you've mentioned on the Linux Action Show several times that you're big into automation and things like that. It's kind of a hobby of yours. and something you're really into. And I've been thinking... um, You know, I'm trying to teach my kids that there's something else you can do with Linux and computers in general other than consume from them. And um, they're very interested in mathematics, engineering, things like that. Um, They're both in high school, and they're very hands-on kids. They like to learn hands-on. And I was wondering, um, I have very little technical knowledge, but I was wondering what would be the best way to get them started on some projects around the house.
2: Sure.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh God. That's a, f- that's a fun question. Uh, well, there's. I mean, this. It's endless. I mean, we could do a whole hour on this. Uh, I, so the first thing I, I would suggest uh, one of the one of the largest supported m- where the most resources are available for this kind of thing is robotics. Um, there are there is a ton a ton of resources for uh, people of all ages, everything from five years old to to 50 years old on, 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 on building robots and controlling robots. You can do it with Arduinos. You can do it with pies. You can do it with repurposed computers. You can do it with custom built kits, all sorts of things. And it, 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 the nice thing about robotics is it teaches you at a very basic level, a lot of the fundamentals that we overlook sometimes with computers, right? Because in a robotic sense, what you, what it forces your mind to do is you have to start thinking on the uh, in terms of instructions, in terms of of clear uh, instructing the computer to do certain things. I want the robot to walk over here, then I want it to pick this thing up, then I want it to turn back around about you know this degree or this many you know inches or whatever, and then I want it to walk over here. And you can you you have to start programmatically learning how to tell. The computer, what you want it to do. So that's a really great thing, you know, a really great thing to start with. And then the nice thing about it is it really, really skills. So you can go from something really, really simple for just, you know, a couple hundred bucks that, you know, give, gets a lot of really quick wins all the way up to some really complicated things. And they have, uh, you're in Texas, right? Uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So th- there's, there's gonna you're gonna have tons of resources all around you. Um, there's clubs, a lot of your pu- public library might check with them. They might, Uh, Have something for you. Uh, There's all sorts of things that have uh, resources for robotics. That's one thing you could do. Uh, The other thing you could do, and I actually helped a gentleman and his son was they were doing this uh, was I was actually teaching uh, his son how to do uh, very basic computer troubleshooting and repair. Uh, and his, his son, he was a little bit younger than your kids. I think they were, he was like uh, 10 or 11. Um, but we went through how do you install an operating system? If it's, uh, if it's a Windows operating system, how do you install the drivers? Uh, how do you get this hardware to work? What, what do the various messages mean? How do you troubleshoot and determine? Is it a, is it a, uh, is it a part in the computer or is it, is it a problem in software and stuff like that? And you, you know, you can, you, can, it's, it's interesting because when you start working with kids, um, and, and and you you can point out some things very early on that'll carry them a long way. So this this these kids I was working with, he comes to me and he says, "The video card doesn't work." I said, well, "How do you know the video card doesn't work?" And he says, "Well, I I changed, I tried a different motherboard, I tried a different uh, RAM, I tried a different CPU, uh, everything else. The only thing I haven't uh, different power supply. The only thing I haven't ch- switched is a video card. So I, it has to be the video card." And I said, "Well." Have you tried a new video card? Maybe we should try a new video card. If it works, then you know it's a video card. And so, so little things like that, uh, you know, you can teach them troubleshooting. Um, I have There's a, a friend of mine at Southeast Linux Fest, uh, and he has a strict policy in his house that if you use Linux, he will give you some guidance. If you use any other operating system, you have to figure it out yourself. But he never gives his kids the answer to how to fix the problems on their computers. He just guides them and says, "Okay, well, have you tried this? Or, or or look at this resource. Or, or uh, let me show you how these first couple steps. Okay, now you try and finish the rest." Uh, And he kind of guides his kids through, uh, um, you know, negotiating our own technology, so to speak. Is any of that helpful to you?
0: Yeah, but what I'm specifically, we're all on Linux. I've gotten that far. They're using Linux on a daily basis. Um, they can install the operating system. They can do basic troubleshooting. In fact, my son was just pulling his hair out. He was he was trying to get League of Legends running under Linux, and he was able to, you know, research on the web, get running on his own, and I'm like, if you want to play video games on Linux, go do it, but I'm not helping you.
2: Yeah. And
0: he yeah. was, well, of course, he was very motivated, very motivated to do that, right? And he got that running, so there was no problem at all with that. But I'm looking for something, like I said, with because I've heard you talk about it before, I'm looking for specific problems to do for home automation, lights, entertainment, uh, you know, setting up Bluetooth oh. speaker systems oh, okay. in the home, um, you know, uh, security systems, cameras, things like that that they would be able to work gotcha. on and it would be a real-world application that would help us.
1: Gotcha. I'm so, I to, you know what? I, I you know, it's, it's a problem, uh, Brent. I, my mind is just like it's all over the place, and I'm lost like a ball in tall weeds. I'm sorry. I totally missed the home automation part of your question. I'm so sorry. Uh, so let me redirect and, and give you the answer, the actual answer to the, to your question. Uh, yeah, so home automation, there's uh, there's a number of different things that you can get involved in. So let's start with the, the last one you mentioned, security cameras, right? There is a free project called Zone Minder. And what ZoneMinder allows you to do is you can take consumer-grade webcams, you can take uh, very expensive, like we're talking $20, $30 IP cams, and you can use them to build a enterprise grade, DVR capable, motion detecting, web browser accessible uh, security system. Uh, and it is, the software is free, so you can just download it and set it up. So that, that's one thing you could do. There is, um, there, is a, there is a whole project, uh, and I forget the, the name escapes me right off the top of my head, but there's a whole, let's open the chat room up in case they, they, they ping me. There's, a, there's an entire project that you can put on a Raspberry Pi that acts as a home automation hub. Uh, and and I know that's real popular for for people that want to play with it. So there's 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 definitely that route you could go. Um, but yeah, it's if if you uh, if you start looking in and you say what particular part, like if you're looking at home automation as a whole, try to find one thing that you want to center around. So for me, it's lighting control. Uh, some people center around the security okay. aspect, but different brands and, and there's different there's different solutions depending on what you want the central point of your home automation system to be. So the, the, the big ones are uh, sound uh, sound and entertainment, security or lights, and then you can tie other systems. Obviously, so if you buy a security centric system, obviously you can still control lights. Um, but there is a different set of manufacturers that make really good security systems that also tie into. All of their home automation stuff. For me, I've kind of gone the way of, of lighting control with with the Lutron systems, and then I tie things like my security system into my light system and stuff like that. But uh, that's kind of how I. That's kind of a great way to frame it in, in your mind is kind of decide where you want to center around, and then you can kind of branch out. Is that more of an accurate answer to your question?
0: Yes, that's that's a little bit closer. Now, how do I avoid? I mean, is there something out there that's, Uh, you know, of course I want this to be open source. I don't want to get into proprietary systems where I get locked into something I can't get out. And, um, you know, I want to be able to run these, you know, with open source software and be able to to add on as I go and not be locked into a particular uh, proprietary system. And and is there somewhere where I'm going to be able to go to get guidance on the web, some resource I can look that would be, you know, Linux-based on this?
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, home, home-assistant.io. And this is the project I was telling you about. It's, 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 uh, it's based on Python 3, but it is an open source home automation control system that is, that can be run on even a Raspberry Pi. And, uh, and basically what it is, is it acts like a central hub of sorts. And then you can tie in your lighting system and your, your HVAC system and your security system all and your home, autom- or your home automation or home, uh, theater system all to, Home Assistant, and then this just kind of acts as that central place that that you can that you can work from. And they they have uh, they have some really great screenshots, so you kind of see what you're getting into. Uh, they have an interactive demo that you can open up, and it actually it gives you little fake rooms that you can control. And then it has little associated pictures, so you can see like, oh, that was what happened if I turn that light off. Uh, and um, it has you know you can they have a little thing in here you can control like your TV, so you can start and stop videos and send it to this TV or that TV. All that stuff you can do right right from Home Assistant. Uh, so that would be where I'd start.
0: Okay, okay, that's that's what I'm looking for. So start with home assistant, and then how does how does this remind me? And how does this zone minder work in that? Or is this home assistant something uh, or home dash assistant something totally separate?
1: Yeah, there's two separate projects, but you would tie you. I, I mean, I would assume you could tie one into the other. I haven't actually. I guess it, I'm looking here. I, I would guess this looks so uh, extensive. I'd be really shocked if there was a way to tie security cameras in this. let me see here send notifications. Doo, doo, doo. I'd have to look into it a little bit more. I'm not seeing it off the top of my head, but I would I I would imagine that you can tie uh, security cameras into this. Uh, how MITer works, it's basically just an ISO that you download and you put it on either a virtual machine or you'd put it on a uh, a machine that's or a, a, you know, a bare metal and then uh, and then you just go visit the web page. It, it it boots up and it gives you an IP address and you just go to the web page and there's a configuration wizard and it says you know, there'll be little options like I want to add a camera. What kind of camera is it? It's a local USB camera or it's an IP camera and this is the model number and this is the IP address. And then you can, once you have all the cameras added, then you can say, okay, I want to see a split screen of these 16 cameras or these eight cameras or these four cameras. And uh, I'll tell you something else, Brent. When I first started with ZoneMinder, I was woefully unimpressed with it. I I said it looked really, really tacky, really, really amateurish. And uh, a viewer from the show Actually reached out and he said, I I don't want you to use any of these examples on air uh, because they are uh, they're they're sensitive. But here are some screen caps from my zone mind system that I set up at my uh, my work. And here's what they look like. And they were fantastic. Like, he, I mean, it really looked good. So, there's, there is some theming you can do, and there are some UI tweaks you can do to make it look like a truly professional product. And, uh, you know, the zone might just really work with that guy because uh, he makes their product look a million times better. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, uh, let me see if I can, I'll have the, I'll have both the uh, links for you. In the show notes, I'm just looking up here. It's zomeminder.com. That's it's Zominder.com and Home uh, Home-Assistant.io. Okay,
0: okay. So just get in and start reading and build from there, right?
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, and I, yeah, yes, sir. And I thank you very much for the call. It's the Home Assistant is uh, is really cool. It's something I really I'm going to need to play with later on. The the problem for me with home automation is that uh, I got burned so early on. I. Uh, I started with home automation back when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And I was at there's – a, there's a store in the the Midwest called Menards. It's a hardware store. And they had a kit that you could buy for $99. And it was a, a home automation kit. And it ran on the X, uh, X, X10 protocol. Is that right? Is that what it's called? I can't even remember anymore. Yeah, X10 protocol. And I, um, and I bought the thing. <clears throat> and the promise was you could install the software on your computer – and you could plug these little modules in, and they had a little module that you could screw a light bulb into, and they had a little module you could plug fans and stuff into. And uh, the promise was that you could control it all from the software. And it worked 85% of the time. And the other 15% of the time, it didn't work. And I thought, okay, well, here's the reason why is this is a stupid little starter kit. But if I buy the actual modules that replace the light switches and then I buy the little controllers that replace the light switches and stuff like that, then this is, this is really going to be the key. And you know, I am our, our editor, Rakai, he, he lovingly and sometimes not so lovingly calls me, uh, the Walmart Linux user because I tend to do the lowest common denominator of everything. If there are three different projects or three different software solutions or three different options in front of me, and one works on every Linux distribution, and 100% of the time, startup, but has 10% of the features of this other thing that works on, you know, maybe half of the Linux distributions. And but it has like it has like 90% feature full. I'll always take lowest common denominator because that's just the way I am. Um, and so you know, X10 to me was this great equalizer because everything at the time worked with X10. And there were all these competing protocols out there, but X10 was was the king. And of course, at you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, I, I didn't have the money to go buy all of these various competing projects and, and then have a chance if it failed or if the company went out of business or something like that. So it seemed like a really safe investment to keep buying X10 stuff. And I, I mean, I probably had, by the time I moved out of my parents' house, I moved out when I was 17 or 18. I I probably had thousands and thousands of dollars of X10 stuff and none of it worked right. None of it. It never worked right. It was like a bad science project. And when I got when my, my wife and I got married. And of course, you know, I was automating the house with all of this X10 stuff and she'd walk into the bathroom and she'd push the button and the lights wouldn't come on because it was a stupid X10 thing and it would miss this, it would miss the protocol send or something like that. And the problem is if it didn't work at all, we would, you know, then we'd just have a flashlight or something. You could compensate for it, but it worked 85% of the time. And then just 15% of the time you hit the button and it always took like 10 seconds for the stupid signal to get received and the light to come on. So by the time you got down to in your business, then all of a sudden you just realized, oh, I guess I just don't get light this time. And- and that left a really bad taste in my mouth and, and, and you know, it was, she was really – my wife was really upset about it early on and uh, I just got sick of it. I got sick of the – I got sick of the science project-like stuff. And, uh, and so then I started uh, – you know, it was when I started and we started doing professional automation you know with uh, very expensive uh, systems working with uh, Crestron and Lutron and and, uh, and and these these big name manufacturers that make really really high end stuff that works 100% of the time and, uh, when that started to take off, then, I, then, then I started to get into, okay, this is how we do home automation properly and without any problems. And, and what that led to was when we moved and we built our new house, you know, I start, I would strip the every, I, I we go room for room. We're still not done. And we go room to room and I rip everything out. We put in all new electrical. And part of that is home automation. To me, it's not something that just hangs out of the wall. It's built into the house. So all of our outlets are controllable. All of the light switches are replaced, thermostats in every room are replaced, all that stuff. So you don't see any of the home automation. It's all, it's all uh, neatly in inside of the wall, so to speak. And then obviously we have you know a bunch of controlling hardware downstairs, and uh, it, but it works all the time. And the other thing is because I have bought very high end stuff, it always it, every one of those things has GPIO on it. Like I don't know, 16, 18 uh, GPIO channels on on some of these controllers, and so. What that means is there is never a time I have to worry about can this thing talk to that thing? And you know, Chris and I were having a conversation about this a couple of months ago. We were out in in um in Bozeman, Montana. And we we're just talking about how him and I see home automation differently. And, and, and Chris, you know, it, it, in technology in general, uh, sometimes we don't, we, d- we just have different views on it. He will see a lot of this stuff as as it being okay to be disposable. It doesn't, if he buys these little plug-in modules and they don't work in, in five or, or seven years or ten years, he won't care. It won't bother him. He'll say, I got my monies out of it. That was fine. I was able to turn my fan on or whatever for this long. And now the cloud-based API thing that connected that cloud thing to this cloud thing doesn't work. In, but I don't care because, it, you know, it's fine. And that's if that's your view on it, then th- then those things are a really good solution. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very well supported. They're very inexpensive. They're super easy to install. You don't need to pay an electrician. You don't have to have any real knowledge of networking or anything like that. You just connect it to the Wi-Fi. You open the app. You push the magic button and boom, it's paired. It's done. Uh, if that's your view, then that works for you. For me personally… I want to install it one time and I want to use it for the rest of my life and I don't want anything or anyone to be able to break it or take it out of, out of play. And so all of the home automation systems that are in my house, they're all GPIO. The garage door is controlled by a pair of contact closures. The uh, electromagnetic lock that secures and unsecures the front door is controlled by a pair of contact closures. Uh, and, and those are all inside of control panel downstairs. And so any divi- if tomorrow the little company that makes my RFID reader for the house so I can swipe my, my credentials and it unlocks the door, if that company goes out of business and ceases to exist, I don't have to worry about, well, can I find somebody else that will work with uh, this particular magnetic lock control system? It doesn't matter if it can short a pair of contacts it'll work and all of these access control systems can do that so i, I i've just i've built the system in a different way that's a huge unsolicited rant on home automation but uh, there you go. Again, phone lines 855 450 noaa That's what I'll do. I'll blame it on the audience if uh, if I'm talking too much about home automation, because you guys aren't giving me something else to talk about. 855 450 8554506624, the email live at asnoashow.com. Okay. Penetration testing. So uh, when you're looking at securing a network, you you we, again we approach it from the standpoint of how would we break into it. And so the the, the first step that the EC Council uh lays out for breaking into a network is reconnaissance. And reconnaissance is basically you going out into the facility or around the facility and observing. You're not actively doing anything. You're simply observing. You may not even actually enter the facility. Um, And so things that I pay attention to when I'm doing reconnaissance, do the staff, are they wearing ID badges? If they're wearing ID badges, what security, if any, is on the ID badges? In other words, did they just put a piece of paper and laminate it and stick it on and that that happens in a large amount of businesses sometimes it's even p v c card you can order those online or print them yourself uh the The better ones obviously have h i d or carry credentials inside of the uh inside of the i d and that gets a little bit more difficult but still defeatable. And so you're paying attention to these things. When people go in, is there somebody at the front door that's checking these credentials? Or is it just kind of a game that we all we all wear as it. kind of like a fashion statement? We all have an ID badge on. If somebody doesn't have an ID badge on, is that person stopped? Is anyone asking that person? Larger large organizations that have really good secured practices stop everyone that doesn't have an ID, or even if they have an ID and they don't recognize that person, one way to throw a would be attacker off his or her game, it won't work with all of them, but it'll work with a lot of them. They're already nervous. And so, even if some, even if they have, they forge the, the correct credentials and stuff like that, you just walk up and say, Hey, I don't remember seeing you around before. My name is Joe. I work in so and so and just have a conversation. You can start to get up again. Some people are good enough at social engineering. They can just, they'll, they'll put on an act and they'll buzz right by you, but a lot of people will trip up. And, and you can they, they start to get nervous and they can 't answer questions directly and, and you, you just kind of sniff them out uh, and and so I pay attention to those kinds of things. Um, I was working with an organization that uh, we were talking we were laying out a plan on what we were going to do to talk about their security or identify their security. And uh, one of the things I did was I just asked the front on my way out. I just asked the front desk. I said, "Hey, you no, know, I was wondering if um, you know I was talking to so and so upstairs, and uh, I was wondering if I could get into your uh, your IT room and, and take a look around there." And the front desk girl goes, "Yeah, sure. Let me get maintenance." So she gets maintenance. The maintenance goes, well, "I don't have the key to that. The security security guy does." So he calls down to the security office. Security office comes up with the key and he says, "Yeah, I'll t- I'll take it. that's fine." So he walks me and walks me into the server room. Now I hadn't told these people who I was. They certainly didn't hear anything from up the the uh, management that was upstairs. And uh, so I, I got down and I said, "Okay, thanks." And I just took a picture of me sitting at one of their terminals that happened to be logged in. And as uh, so I took a picture of it, and I just walked back upstairs. I just was talking to the uh, to to uh, general manager, and I just said. Here's your biggest problem. Like we can do all of these security practices and we can look at your network and we can put in intrusion detection and all that. This is your biggest problem right here. If anyone can walk in there and just they have a polo on, they just look like they know what they're doing and they can walk in and, and, and you can gain access that way. It doesn't matter what we do on the network side, right? Because you have physical control, game's over. So that, that, those are little things you can look at. And I don't even have to actually – I haven't even touched a computer at this point. I just know that there are problems. And what you find is when you start working on this stuff is that the human element is really the most exploitable. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. So after we get an idea of reconnaissance, oh, and I should add too, the last thing you're looking for in reconnaissance too is value, right? Because oftentimes, uh, sometimes targets are going to be a fact of low-hanging fruit while well, they just happen to leave themselves so wide open – that it, we may as well go steal all their data and just hope that it's worth something. But most times, if an attacker is going to spend any any real amount of money, they're going to only do that if there's something of value at the organization. And so, what you look for is, uh, you know, as a as a as a security analyst, you're looking at is it readily available that there is something of value, but you're also looking for things of value. And, and so, so what, what is the value? What data would people want to get? To? Well, if you're a hotel, maybe you have credit card transactions that we could get to. You know, if you're a bank, you have obviously all sorts of, uh, you know, personal details that, that, that are worth money. Um, so you're looking for that. Is there a thing that keeps, is there an HR department that keeps all the social security numbers that we can use for identity theft or sell those for identity theft? Those kinds of things. We're looking for value. And once we have value identified, then we have potential targets identified. I want access to that SQL server. I want access to that file server. That that so and so's computer is is the honeypot. Or is the uh, that's a wrong term to use in this episode. So and so's computer is the goldmine of information that I'm I'm looking to get to. So I, I want to get to so and so's computer. And so once we have identified that target, we move on to step two. And step two is scanning. And scanning is simply. Let's see what we can get access to. This is the first time you're really touching a computer. And uh, a basic scan uh, could be as simple as simply pinging IP addresses, pinging IP addresses on the network just to see what you're able to access. I was at a, I won't say the name of it, but I was at a place and I was eating and I was connected to their uh, Wi-Fi. And uh, I, it wasn't, you know, I, you know—you never actively, uh Do any sort of—it's actually legal to do any sort of penetration testing or security scanning or anything like that without the consent, written and signed consent of the business owner. So you'd never want to do that. However, sometimes the computer does things for you to try to be helpful, and it's nothing that I—that we're trying to do. And so Nautilus actually showed me a list of uh, Samba shares that were available. And and I didn't ask for it. It just I happened to click on something, and it and these these uh, these advertised network shares popped up, and one of them was all of their HR files, all of the the employment files. And so I just I took a screen cap of it and I printed it off and put it into an envelope and and gave it to the owner. And I just said, just so you know, uh, because. I don't want it to come off as if you know I'm I'm trying to, to to make a a plug here for for my business, but I will come fix this for you for free just as a courtesy. I happen to notice it, and this is these are the steps you can take. Here are some of our competitors that you could call if you you know are concerned that I had tried to do something, but here's what I found. They can verify that you know this is just something that that exists the way that you set it up, uh, or we'd be happy to fix for you. And obviously we wouldn't. You know, bill you for that because I'm not trying to make a buck; I'm just trying to help you out. Uh, and, and I just dropped it off and, and, and just let them know. Uh, and, and you know, again, that didn't involve any active effort. So sometimes, just simply pinging an IP address, you can just simply just see what what's available. You'd be surprised. Now, there's a more advanced version of ping called hping. And uh, if you're not familiar with what ping is, what ping does is basically sends an oops, it basically sends an ICMP uh, data burst and then receives an ICMP data reply. That's it. And it just basically, that's used to tell us that the host is alive. Well, HPing, instead of using ICMP Echo, it supports TCP, it supports UDP, it does support ICMP, uh, it supports raw IP protocols, <clears throat> it has a trace route mode, and you have the ability to send files uh, in- between a covered champ. So, HPing is a really powerful tool that you can use, uh, available on Linux, obviously, I- I'm not sure if it's cross-platform, uh, but but HPing is, is one of those, the, those very rudimentary tools that you can use uh, just as a scanning tool just to see what's out there, what's available. A little bit more powerful than ping, but not nearly as powerful as the next program I'm going to talk about, which is, of course, NMAP. Now, NMAP is the, easily the gold standard of network scanning and network analysis. NMAP, uh, as made popular by the movie The Matrix, which, you know, they had an NMAP scan. That's how they hacked into various things. Neo was using NMAP uh, famously. NMAP is one of the most powerful underrated tools that exists for your computer. There are so many people that even today that I find that have not heard of NMAP or don't use NMAP. And those of us that have heard of NMAP and used frequently uh, are often surprised by that. Like, And when I said that, I promise you there's at least one person out there that's screaming at their computer, how could, at least he not know what he's talking about. It. Of course, everyone's heard of NMAP. NMAP is an incredibly powerful uh, program. And what NMAP allows you to do is 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 generate a picture of the network. It will go out and touch every single IP, every host on the network, and then it will return depending on what arguments you pass and what kind of scan you're doing, it will return of a litany of data on that particular host. So it will tell you uh, this based on the evidence that i can see this is a windows server this is a linux server this is an this is running sql this is running a web server this is running an email server uh this uh, this this network card is made by hp or this computer is made by dell or this network card is made by intel and it knows all of this information it's getting some of that from the mac address it's getting some of that from the open ports and 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 what services usually reside on those ports it's an incredibly powerful piece of software and uh, and so Nmap is uh, is is usually one of the first tools that I'll use. I use HPing sometimes, but by and large, uh, Nmap gets used on a daily basis. I'll tell you what else is uh, what else Nmap is really useful for, uh, is when you just go with the first time you're on site at a new client because. How many, every one of you that has worked in IT have dealt with this? You go into a new site, you meet a new client, they say, yep, I need to need to have your look at the computer system which, uh, in that closet over there. And then you say, well, no, sir, that is your uh, electrical closet that has the electrical breakers. I'm looking for the IT room. It's uh, It's got a bunch of little like phone looking cords and they're all plugged in here. Oh yeah, had to be over there next to that broom closet. There is we put a wall up there, and it's the old broom closet now. And so you walk in there, and you 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 look, and yeah, sure there enough is there's there's a punch panel and switch. <clears throat> well, what's your IP scheme here? What's your network documentation? Where's your edge device? Where's the uh, where's the internet coming? Where's your pipe coming? Where's your router? Uh, what are the admin username and passwords for all this? Stuff? Yeah, I don't know anything about all that. We uh, just uh, you know that closet there. The power goes out, and the internet don't work. And yeah, that's uh, we don't like that. So yeah, if you could. Uh, uh, go ahead and restart the router there, and just uh, make sure everything works, and that'd be real great. So then you go and say, okay, well I have no documentation, and I have no way to administrate this network. And one of the very first things I'll do, connect my laptop up, run nmap on the local subnet, and say, okay, here are all of the things that exist. That starts to give me an idea of, okay, I've got three printers, I've got five computers, I've got two servers, I've got here's the router. It will tell you all of that just by running an nmap scan, usually, uh, and that is is ridiculously helpful. Another tool that is really helpful in scanning phase is a tool called TCP dump. Now, if you haven't used TCP dump, TCP dump will allow you to basically just see what traffic is coming out of a network jack. And I'll tell you where I use this all the time in the field. If I have a device that has been given to me, particularly if it's secondhand, but sometimes I'll buy it brand new and it just doesn't have the right documentation or I'm just too lazy to read the documentation, that is quite honestly a, a thing that happens. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, I want to configure this thing. I don't know what the default address is. You, I could go scour a PDF manual, which would take me 15 minutes to find it and download it and read it and control F and grep and all that crap. Or I can just plug a network cable into the device and run TCP dump and I'll see what IP address that device is programmed for instantaneously. That's also, like I said, it's particularly useful if you have a secondhand device and you don't know what, you know, maybe they changed it from the default, and you you need to be able to get log into the web UI so you can reset it or something like that. TCP dump is your friend. TCP double do that. You simply run TCP dump, plug the device into your laptop, and you'd be able to see all of that. Works really, really well. Uh, But in a penetration testing uh, system, that allows us to go to individual devices. And learn about them. Learn about how they are configured. And if you have, if you get access to a managed to switch, uh, then you can start setting up mirrored ports and running TCP dump and doing all sorts of crazy stuff there too. And of course, you can use uh, Wireshark. Wireshark is another tool that allows you to capture network packets, uh, n- uh, quite a bit more sophisticated than TCP dump. But Wireshark will allow you to see every single piece of network traffic that is flowing through a, uh, the given network card. And so what you can do, there's, there's, there's a couple different ways to capture packets. You have to understand how switches work. Uh, basically, the, old, the, 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 most, uh, the most rudimentary way of connecting four computers together is with a, a hub. And what a Hub is, it's basically just like your six way electrical outlet. You plug a bunch of things in, all the wires are are connected, and uh, and we send and everything can send packets. The problem is if Two, we, we, you have uh, what we call collisions um, because there are so, there's so much traffic that they, 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 we, we have things that collide into each other. And so way back when – and I'd be hard-pressed to tell you the specifications on exactly how to do this anymore. It's been so long since I've done it. But we used to set up collision domains and we would segment, segment off portions of the network so that we didn't have uh, these collisions today we don't have that problem we have something called we have switches that's even when people call them hubs they're not really hubs they're switches and what a switch does is it knows the mac address of every device that's plugged into every single switch port so when one computer wants to send a message to another computer instead of it hitting the hub and saying well the computer is on one of these 27 ports good luck and sending it out on all 27 it says oh this traffic is meant for this one computer that computer is on switch port number 23. I'm going to send it only to switch port 23. Now that's fantastic for efficiency. What sucks is when we're trying to break into the network because it means that I can't use Wireshark to listen to uh, Joe's computer because his computer's on port 23 and my my laptop is plugged into port 15. And so when Joe gets packets sent to him, he's only getting those packets. Those, those packets are only arriving on switch port 23. They're not arriving on, on switch port 15. So there are a couple different ways I can get around that. The first way is I can – I can use, if it's a managed switch, in other words, there's a web interface or a command line interface that I can reconfigure the switch to do some things, we can set up something called a management port. And what a management port – or well, a mirrored port really. Uh, it, we, we, basically, what we can do is we can tell switch port 23 to send the same – everything it sends to switch port 23 also send that traffic to switch port 15. And then I can use a program like Wireshark to capture all of the data that's coming over Switchport 23. And that would include any unencrypted passwords. Now, why do I make a point to bring that up? I make a point to bring that up because we talk all the time about using VPN services. And the reason that we hammer that home and why you should go to askmoshow.com and click on the little link that we have there to sign up for private internet access if you're not using this is because if you're on a network that you don't control if somebody like me controls it i can set up a mirrored uh, switch port on any one of those port uh, on any one of uh, on any, uh, any of my switches and i can mirror all of your traffic now if you have an encrypted connection if you got a if you've got an https you got a little green padlock in firefox uh, when you're connected then you have a tunnel that is encrypting all of your traffic so you're probably fine but things like an ftp connection uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other things that are. there's. It's getting less and less, but th- there are a number of different things that transmit uh, plain text, uh, username and passwords, and I can see all of that information going across a network. So that's one way to do it is with a mirrored port through with the with if you have access to the management VLAN. The second way to do this is by actually buying a old hub, and Netgear used to make a little four port hub. It was very, very popular, and I have had one for years, and I still have one, and the reason I have one is because I, if I'm troubleshooting something, I'll walk up to the person that's having the problem, and I'll unplug their computer from the network, and I will plug in my little four-port Netgear hub, and then I'll plug it into my laptop, and now I can open Wireshark and I can clone all of their traffic, and I can see what I'm using it as a you know, troubleshooting sense. and before this show – I actually went online because I was going to link it in the show notes. Not only does Netgear not make them, which I kind of expected that, they're ridiculously expensive. They're like hundreds of dollars now. And I think the reason for that is because nobody is buying these things for uh, their intended purpose, which is just to get computers, they're only using them to troubleshoot. But the, the, the reason that this is such a valuable tool is because if you don't have a managed switch, you don't have a way to set up a mirrored port. And, and that's a very useful troubleshooting thing, especially when you're dealing with a lot of VoIP phones like we have. We install a lot of SIP systems. Man, if you don't have a, a, an ability to monitor network traffic and look at how you know, the QoS is working and stuff like that, if you can't actually get in there and see the stuff, you're just guessing. I mean, you're, you're going to try different things and just hope something works. So a, 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 a hub is a very useful device and a and wire shark and, and things like TCP dump are, are very useful there. So after we have a, a a good idea of what is on the network, now we know where all the computers are. We know that we have a database server. We know that we have these Linux servers and Windows servers or Linux clients or whatever. Now we want to get access to them. And we also want to escalate the access as much as possible. And so there is one program and only one program I recommend for doing this. There's going to be somebody out there that's going to say, well, what about the?" There's only one program you should worry about. Metasploit. Metasploit is the best program for uh, for, for for finding vulnerabilities on computers because metasploit you can literally start metasploit up on a network say scan and it will go through and say okay I found these six services running on this computer and they're running uh, MySQL blah 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 and that particular version has this particular vulnerability and here's how you can exploit it it's I mean it's like it's like hacking for dummies. It's it's close as you can get to being a script kitty without being called a script kitty. And if you don't know what a script kitty is, then I'm then I'm glad I got to you first. Uh, but Metasploit is the only application you should use for that. If there's something out there you like, I, I guess I shouldn't say you shouldn't use anything else. But I, I have tried them all, and there's nothing I like as much as Metasploit. All right, so uh, after we have access, we want to escalate that access. We want to elevate those privileges. And I actually spoke about this last episode. If I If I get access to one machine... What can I do after I've gotten access to that machine? Because so in the example last week, we were, we were talking about air. Well, it's not really air gapping. It's like semi air gapping. But I was talking about putting a local repository server with two NICs in it. And one NIC goes onto the internet. And then the other NIC is on this little uh, more secure network. And uh, the, why I say it's semi air gapped, it's not truly air gapped, is because obviously if I, can, if I ran Metasploit from the internet and I, I compromised this SQL server, now I'm into it. Now the next thing I can do is I can expand my access out. I can say, "Oh look, it's connected to this other little secure network," and I can I can get into that network. I can start banging on on this other machine here that has you know this uh, information on it that I want, and uh, and so then we expand our access out. All right, uh, I'm gonna go back to the phone eight five five four five zero six six two four live at AskNoahShow.com. dot com. Joel is calling. Hey Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: How's it going, Noah?
1: Hey, pretty good. Happy to
2: have you back. uh, Yeah, so um, I want to uh, emphasize a point with with regards to your your main topic of the episode being security, and that is community. Getting together and actually learning stuff from the community, be it any sort of uh, new uh, tool and or new protocol and other sort of stuff, getting together for meetups and or other events such as – B-sides and other sort of and uh, um, those type of event, events are very helpful in, in terms of learning new secure and new uh, stuff about security. And uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. And the other, the the other thing about, the other thing about community is it also allows you to advance your trait, your skill set, right? Like as you talk to these people, they say, well, here's the thing I ran into and here's how I solve that problem. And that's things you only get. I've learned more in 15 minutes sitting with somebody who does it day in and day out than, than you can learn in, 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 in six months of Googling, right?
2: Yeah, of course. And um, also, uh, in terms of, and also do um, relate to the point, uh, there's a site called meetup.org or meetup.com. I'm trying to remember. Yes. Uh, you could probably yep. find some good groups uh, in your local area that do a lot of technical stuff, be it maker spaces and or Pi nights, Python Nights. Um, where I live currently, um, we're sort of experiencing some sort of a technical um, overflow because our our nearby military base just uh, got the it just now the uh, has a the head of the has the um, NSA uh, uh, cyber command and. Where I and because of this, um, there's been a sort of emphasis uh, in our universe in our local university, to uh, um, to try to promote these sort of IT security sort of uh, degrees, and also um, the community as well to uh, try to enhance their uh, workforce, uh, try to get more people interested in security from K through 12 and all that. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. In fact, I'll give a plug here. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcast. And we haven't talked about this on the air for a little bit because Chris and I have been so busy. We just haven't a lot of time to do these things. But if there's everyone ever interested in this, this, uh, they, uh, Jupiter Broadcasting actually, uh, I think they have to pay to, to do this. So it's, it's actually, it's a service they're, they that we've tried to provide. Um, and basically, um, what it is is the ability to schedule a time and a place where we can all get together and and hang out and, and for different reasons and so uh i i I'll, I'll go as far as to say if it's planned out far ahead enough of time i would do well if it's planned far enough out ahead of time i'll go anywhere in the world if it's planned reasonably far in advance i will go I- anywhere in the US and uh if it's planned even a day, a day or so. Within a day or so, I would do something in this local area. So, if anyone wants to do that, get a hold of me and 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 you should, If you're not already a member, meetup. dot com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Make sure to sign up because you can stay uh, up to date on on what the network's doing. That, but yeah, thank you, Joel. I really appreciate that.
2: No problem. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's you're right. Community is a huge part of that. Again, eight five five four five zero noaa That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. That's the that's the number you can join us live, make your voice heard, become a part of the program. So after we have made our uh, initial access and we have expanded that access as far as we can, now the next thing that we can do, we could just sit there quietly and monitor what's happening on 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 the, on the network system. Let's say these files came in, the people sent these emails. And you can just quietly suck data off and sell it for information or whatever. But the other thing that attackers can do is they can do exfiltration. They can change or they can remove data. They can modify data so that to to meet an end. A lot of people that uh that, that do these kind of attacks are politically motivated. And so they if they if, if they if they can change some information that will help uh, that succeed in their end goal, they might do that, or if they can delete information and hurt the organization, they might do that. The other thing we do once we're in there is sustainment. And that's this idea that we want to sustain our access. We want to make sure that if whatever the original exploit that we use to access the system gets out, we can and we can we can find another way in. It. So we can use something like a rootkit. And I'm not going to give any examples of rootkits because again, the it's it's a very difficult line that we walk when we try to talk about this stuff because you don't ever want to be accused of oh you're trying to convince people to hack into other people's computers. To be honest with you, as a geek, it's fun to think about it as a thought process. Okay, I'll just be the first one to admit that it, most of us that get into security penetration stuff. We think it's fun. We all want to be like uh, the, you know, the the, uh, the the movie in the '90s. We all want to be like, uh, you know, Acid. Uh, what was the name? Acid and um, and uh, who was the blonde kid? Uh, crash Crash Override and Acid Burn. We, we that's uh, all of us that have seen that. But it's just a cool thing, you know. It's completely unrealistic. We all know that, uh, but at the same time, like a lot of us that are into technology, we just think stuff like that is cool. We think the culture's cool. Um, and so it becomes difficult to talk about this without actually uh, encouraging people to, to, you know, to 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 do some bad things. So, and I'm not giving examples of rootkits, but just understand that they exist. And if you're trying to prevent an attack, then you want to make sure that these things like rootkits aren't available, aren't installed on your system. And there are ways to scan and and look through that. And we'll get to that in a second. The last thing that people that the last the last thing that somebody will do to to attack a system, and you hope this never happens, but it, we have had examples of it happening, is assault, and that's where things are physically destroyed. So think of Stuxnet. Um, Stuxnet, if you are not familiar, was uh, a compromise of a nuclear facility which basically programmed uh, these PLCs to to, to overrun the uh, to overdrive these motors until they burned up, uh, and so they physically destroyed things. Uh, and, and we hope that an attack never leads to that, but sometimes it does. And the last thing an attacker will do is obfuscation, which is basically we want to hide our tracks. We want to make sure that nobody knows we're ever there. So that's erasing logs and stuff like that. So what can you do about this? Well, the first thing is you can use something like Tripwire. Tripwire is an open source host-based intrusion detection system. And basically what it does is you install it. And you want to install it if, if we're working with something that's very, very... Uh, secure, you always try to install this stuff offline or as close to you want to have just the fresh install of the operating system. And the very first thing you do is install your intrusion detection system. Because what the IDS does is it monitors the system for changes. And so that way, if a rootkit does pop up, if something does get installed, if an attacker is there, Tripwire can notice and say, hey, this changed, this thing changed. And so uh something might be in the system and generate alerts. So the problem is. The problem is, if you if the if a system starts out uh, compromised, then Tripwire has a difficult time understanding the difference between an attacker and just normal day to day operation. Uh, and so, so that's one thing you can do is install an intrusion detection system. Where there's actually something else called an intrusion prevention system, which is it's like an intrusion detection system in that it. You know, it scans, and looks for the stuff, but it actively tries to prevent people from getting in rather than just detecting it. Haven't had a lot of opportunity to work with intr- intrusion prevention systems. We've really only worked with intrusion detection systems. But and, and I talked about this earlier, but but you the the biggest thing that you can do is training and talking with your employees and talking with your clients about human element. Uh, one of the most well-known computer hackers of my generation, well, you know, ever really, is Mr. Kevin Mitnick. He's now a computer concert, a security consultant, but he did he did very little with code and with a laptop. He had the vast majority of his uh, technique for hacking was exploiting the human element. So he would do something like this: he would call J.C. Penney's and he would say. Hey, this is Don from the store or from uh, from the, uh, you know, I was just in your store and I was just wondering uh, if I could get your store number and the general manager's name because I had such an awesome experience there. Well, who doesn't want praise? So they say, yeah, the store is, you know, John Johnson and our store number is 15555. So then he'll call another store and he'll say, hey. This is uh, this is Bob, and I'm working at Store One Five 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 Five. And you know the manager, John. He's he's been being such a, a such a goof to me. And I, I just I've had a really hard day, and our computer system's been up and down all day. and I don't know what to do. And I got this customer yelling. At me, is there any chance you could give me her card number so she could check out? Because she says it's in the system, but I can't find it. Well, everyone has been there, and maybe this guy used to work at that particular store, knows exactly who John is, and how much of a jerk that guy can be. So yeah, I'll help my other fellow employee out. And so he'll call, and so they'll look up the credit card number and say, Yeah, here you go. You can check so and so out. Uh, Various things like that. And he wrote a whole book about this. It's called The Art of Deception. I'll have a link in the show notes. A fantastic book about the human element. But when you start researching this stuff, and we have, uh, and we also pay a lot of attention to research that has been done by large organizations, what you find is that the human element is most exploitable. If you have a flash drive or a CD that's in a parking lot, it has an 80% chance of being inserted into a computer inside of the corporate network. If you write payroll, current year payroll, On the outside of that CD or flash drive, that number jumps up to 99%. There is a 99% certainty. That I can get a flash drive with anything I want on it plugged into a to, a, to an internal corporate network just by writing the words "current year payroll" on, on on the outside of that flash drive. So that's really what you have to pay attention to. That's really the way to solve this stuff. Again, before you do any of this, make sure you have permission. Define the scope. Are we doing the tech only? Or are we just doing the network side? Or are we doing the human behavior? Hey guys, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. You can follow me personally at Colonel Linux. I did an interview with this week in Enterprise Tech Show. Make sure to watch that. It comes out. This Friday, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, our live time is changing to Tuesday at uh, 6 p.m. Central. That's coming up starting the first of or the second of next year. Huge thanks to Simon Quidley filling in his call screener. Rakai, our video editor. Uh, we'll hand you up to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ Q80.3 LPFM. Forks.